Of course, modern advances and increasing leisure can add greatly to the comfort and enjoyment of life, but they must not be confused with indolence, with, in the words of Theodore Roosevelt, slothful ease, with an increasing deterioration of our physical strength, for the strength of our youth and the fitness of our adults are among our most important assets, and this growing decline is a matter of urgent concern to thoughtful Americans. Yeah. All right. Think of the kids, you know, the youth. <laughs> there's there's another funny uh, JFK quote that doesn't get referenced as often where he's talking about how there's nothing quite so sad as seeing a, a, a soft, chubby young child sitting on the sidelines as a spectator uh, to sports while... You know, it, it's very politically incorrect, but it sort of speaks of this this bygone era, you know, back when California still had its beach bodies. Um, you're, you're, you're still there, kind of uh, the, the remnant, the last remaining beach body in California. Uh, but but it used to be, you know, you went to the beach and, and you saw good looking people. What happened? A lot, a lot has gone down over the over the past few decades, and it's great to be connecting with you, Charlie, because you're definitely someone who's focused on, on catalyzing and and contributing towards the reversal of that and and the upswell of of the return of a kinesthetic culture of of a physical prowess. And and honestly, you're right. In a lot of ways, we're failing these children. We're failing the next generation as a society. And it's our responsibility to do what we can to bring our health and our vitality back to working ways. And that passage was from an article you wrote on Medium about your experience engaging with a 50-mile march, and you're, you're gearing up for another one. What was the catalyst for that, and, and how do you view that experience? Yeah, so it, it kind of started on a whim. I realized that for the first time, it was possible to walk around all three bridges in San Francisco Bay. So there's the Golden Gate Bridge, everyone knows, that links San Francisco to, to Marin County. But then there's these two other bridges, the Bay Bridge linking San Francisco to the East Bay where I live, and then there's another one linking the East Bay to Marin. So it kind of makes like a perfect circle. And they just built a bike pedestrian pathway on the, the, the Richmond San Rafael Bridge linking the East Bay with Marin. And I, I did a little Google Maps calculation of the distance from uh, from from one, you know, all the way around. Uh, you can't go quite all the way because the Bay Bridge is only walkable on one part of it. But you can get, you know, 99% of the way there. And that was almost exactly 50 miles. And I must have heard, I think it was through the Art of Manliness blog, the Strenuous Life Project that... You know, they referenced this Teddy Roosevelt challenge, the 50 mile march, which had later been picked up by JFK during his presidency as a way to get his uh, army officers off their butts. You know, they're, they're sitting there in their air conditioned Pentagon offices, ordering men around and they've got no skin in the game. So he thought that they should have to at least put their money where their mouth is if they're sending these men off and be physically fit enough to actually do it themselves. Uh, so, so it became kind of this national craze and ultimately an international phenomenon where groups just organized these 50 mile marches, but, uh, kind of fallen off the map and doesn't happen very often anymore. I, I, I looked around and I found, I think one remaining tradition in Boston where they have a 50 mile, both a foot race and also the option to walk it. So, uh, this was around, uh, I think the end of 2019, when I first thought I would just challenge myself and see if I could do it. But uh, upon my initial uh, failure to complete it for, for reasons we can talk about, um, I, I rescheduled it with, uh, with, with my, with a group of friends and, and uh, we, we did end up doing it kind of in the, the peak of COVID insanity. Amazing. I was, it, it's a lot of, it's like a double marathon, you know, 50 miles is a long distance. I am not sure what the, furthest I've walked is in one day. I don't think it comes even, even close to that. It's probably maybe 10 miles. It would have been broken up throughout the day. Did you have a lot of training leading up to that or did you just kind of jump in cold turkey? My, my training was not specific for the march. Like I do like to walk around town and I'd been in the habit of walking, you know, three, four miles here and there. I think that it's kind of, if I were advising someone on how to train, I would say 
don't necessarily try to do repeated super long distances just because even though it's not nearly as hard on your body as running a marathon or, or you know, a double marathon, you know, we're, we're humans are meant to walk. So we can put in a lot of miles without doing too much damage to our bodies. But I still think that eventually that, you know, the wear and tear could start to have an effect. Whereas just like general, uh, I think general fitness, um, some a little bit of kind of walking technique and, and feeling comfortable in your body uh, is, is much more important than the actual endurance test. And then the last thing is just uh, being able to tap into your own body fat as a, a fuel source. You know, most of us, even pretty lean people are still carrying enough calories on their body to make it through, you know, hundreds of miles. I think I read that, um, you know, the average person just with the, the, the fat that they have around their waist could walk from roughly where I am in, in Northern California to roughly where you are in Los Angeles, uh, just on their own fat supplies, but actually being able to shift into that fat burning mode and, and, uh, use your own body fat that, uh, took things like, you know, intermittent fasting and, uh, and just eating a generally high fat diet so that your body is kind of primed for that. Um, you know, if you're constantly snacking along the way, that's going to slow you down. And it just, your body wants to be in one mode, either rest or digest or the kind of energy burning mode. And I, I tried to stay in that energy burning mode. Definitely seems more efficient to me to just tap into your metabolic flexibility and access that fasted state to, to walk a little bit further, a little bit faster. I bet that was the clarity you experienced on that must have been pretty marvelous. Trying to think, I, I feel like by the time I was done, I was just so ready to, you know, hit the, hit the pillow, but it's true that there's something about walking that increases our quality of thought. And I think that this is kind of underlying JFK's thinking too. He, you know, he studied classical Greece and classical civilizations and found that they made very explicit the link between, uh, you know, bodily excellence and mental excellence. The, the, you know, the original schools in ancient Greece had a, a much better balance, I think, of physical education and the, the more intellectual pursuits. And, you know, if you start your day with vigorous exercise, you're going to have a much better time internalizing whatever you're trying to learn, you know, you're more focused. And so sadly with, you know, PE programs on the chopping block, we think that we need to just sort of force feed our kids more information to get them caught up after this whole fiasco of uh, shelter in place and school closures. But I think it's going to backfire if, you know, if cutting PE is, is just going to lead to, you know, even more, uh, unruly and and hard to educate kids absolutely yeah the that separation between the body and mind is is one of the oddest and most destructive aspects of the way we view our, our place in the world and walking is the best movement practice it's the best exercise i i love long walks 90 minutes to three hours something really magic happens when you just go for that long of a walk it's it's deeply meditative for me, and also there was a time in my life where I was just listening to massive amounts of audiobooks and podcasts, and I would just go on these long walks and listen to this audio content on, on 2X and just learned an enormous amount about the world at a time when I was very confused and frustrated at my place in it. Um, I think a lot of people view hiking as this thing that they have to get in the car and drive somewhere to do, but you can just walk out of your door and walk for an hour, two hours, three hours, and it's really similar to, to something that, that you'd experience on a hike unless you live in a really rough neighborhood. But um, yeah, I love love walking, and I'd like to see more you know walkers out there just, just engaging in, in long walks. It's such a beautiful practice. Yeah, it's true. And you mentioned, you know, unless you live in a really rough neighborhood, and, and it is unfortunate that the way that our world has evolved with freeways and kind of the wrong side of the tracks phenomenon, like not everyone does have the best routes immediately accessible. But there's this quote I like when I was when I was putting together this guide for how to walk more efficiently. I was just looking for little inspirational quotes to weave in and out. And one of them was uh, Werner Herzog, the, the filmmaker, who said, the world opens itself up to those who travel on foot. And I feel like, you know, the map of our world suddenly gets bigger. 
it's like in video games how when you first start the game the map is really small and then as you get more kind of tools like it gets bigger and and, and more interesting and i that that's been true in my experience like i've gotten to know the areas that i've lived quite well and and come to appreciate them uh both in terms of the the natural environment and just being able to actually navigate you know without using google maps uh based on a more kind of intuitive faculty but that that idea of the universe opening itself up like funny things happen when you decide to go on foot it's true yeah you'll notice things in your neighborhood that you've never noticed before it could be a plant that's growing a crazy cactus it could be an entire house and yard that you've lived next to for years that you just never really took the time to observe and it it's got you know fabulous character to it the amount that's all around us that we just take for granted and ignore is is really pretty wild i don't know if you know you've just gone out and just looked deeply into the bark of, of a tree that's you know a block away and it it's something that is to behold and i'm completely sober when i'm doing this too you know these, exactly. these, things, <laughs> these things really are they're just out there all over the place and um yeah, it's it's very accessible. It's free, and it, it's low impact too. A lot of I the most frustrating thing for me is when people who are starting to they think, oh, I need to get fit. I need to, to work out. So they go join a gym or they start running and jogging, like jumping right into the deep end. It's like, well, how about we you know go for some long walks first? How about we just go for some walks every day? And um, yeah, I'd, and in the fifty mile march is such a beautiful way to. I would love to see that catch on as a bigger way, as, as a bigger um, mass movement, um, something that more people are engaging with. You said you're doing that coming up. What is there a certain date that that you are um, going to be doing that? Well, my my plan was to do it October fifteenth, and I've got a a group we're we're meeting on Friday to sort of work out the logistics, and uh, I, I don't know if it's going to happen that soon. I might the the race against the clock is just the shortening days and in the past i've done this closer to the middle of summer but i'm thinking of maybe even pushing it back as far as like the week before thanksgiving just to give people a little bit more time to plan ahead and uh and then you can also tie in a little bit of a gratitude component like think about what am i grateful for while you're making that long trek and i also want to last year we actually did it over the course of two days Um, teddy roosevelt's challenge gave his military officers three days uh although they were they had to wear their full military backpack gear whereas kennedy's challenge was uh, a single day this year i want to go back to the single day because it's just simpler uh, and if people want to adjust the the difficulty i'm thinking they can have the option to just uh, bike part of it bike all or part of it uh biking you know i think in the same vein as walking is, is one of those things that it's a it's a great entry point uh, but yeah definitely we're, we're gonna do it in the next uh, two months month and a half and uh, and the route is also somewhat in question but my thought was to go to go from uh, Santa Cruz to Monterey which is about it, it's also pretty much exactly 50 miles you can do big chunks of it on the beach and then there's just some rural country roads where there's um you know the California missions all up and down the coast you've you've got uh, they're they're basically meant to be about a day's walk apart and so that that idea kind of a little bit of a pilgrimage from one mission to the next from mission santa cruz to the the mission in carmel i think that 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 would be extra special sounds like a beautiful walk too should be part of it you're, you're along the freeway but that's sort of unavoidable in our modern times <laughs> yeah if you live in an in urban very close to urban area and you're going to walk 50 miles, you'll definitely pass some freeways along the way. Right. So you're going to be doing this with your, your natural movement group as, as well. And, and you have in the past, what, how did that group form and, and what sort of activities do you guys engage with? Yeah, my peeps, these guys um, come from all over the Bay area. Some from San Francisco, mostly kind of clustered in the East Bay I'm uh, I'm near Berkeley, and you know people think of of Berkeley this kind of uh, hippie place, and and I think that's partly true. But you but I kind I kind of feel like the the social landscape has changed, where you know now the the dominant type in Berkeley is kind of um, very establishment, very I don't know if it's the university or just all the the yuppies that that uh, 
sort of, you know, like during COVID, it was a, at first it was kind of a lonely period. Obviously, people are all shut up in their homes, but thankfully, I did have this one meetup group that I had belonged to, and it was about you know four really regular members that would get together uh, every Saturday morning at a, a public park just for some free movement in nature. We follow kind of a, a move net pedagogy or like the the you know full spectrum of just natural movements and then we weave in whatever other modalities we're feeling like doing that day so a little tai chi a little yoga and everyone brings movement to share uh, but during covid it was uh, took on a kind of a different form because the people that showed up during those months from like february to june july august when it was kind of uh, people still weren't really sure, like, can we go outside? Uh, the people that said, yeah, you know, I think it's worth the risk. Um, if you were paying attention, like you kind of knew that outdoor transmission wasn't really a thing. And like, so so we, we sort of figured out, like, we can still do this. And the people that, that came and that kept coming all had a little bit of a, like a self-selection bias toward um, a freedom orientation as it related to the pandemic and uh, and so we, we grew this tribe around that set of values. And now we've got, you know, 12 to 15 people that come out pretty regularly and then new people kind of rotate in and out. But that core group uh, will be the, the main uh, cadre of, of 50 mile marchers. And last year, I think we had about 15 people participate in part of it. And uh, four of us did the whole thing from uh, Point Reyes to San Francisco. And yeah, that was over two days. Uh, We slept in an an RV near Stinson Beach up here uh, and then just kept on walking the next day. I think, uh, you know, physical culture, you you alluded to earlier, like kinesthetic culture. Um, There's actually like a lot of, of basis for this in science and anthropology where people that move together their friendships and their relationships take on a different tone. And there's like a a phenomenon uh, called muscular bonding, where when you move together, especially in any sort of rhythmic or uh, like with a certain cadence, then that has the effect of binding the tribe together. So you can picture people around a fire beating drums and, and dancing to the same rhythm. And in the same way, like when you're marching, you tend to kind of get into the same uh, step cadence. It's like, you know, you're not listening to the same music. No one's directing it, but you naturally kind of find that that pattern. Uh, so, so these people have become basically my my closest friends and my community. Wow, that's powerful. Every, every aspect of it. I think movement is something that we've lost in, at a deep level as a collective and, and community as well as as something that has really evaporated over over time. And the fact that you're bringing both those back together. And I love the way you described it as like a movement potluck. Like everyone brings a different movement to sort of engage with and share and, and play with and, and just enjoy the space and enjoy the synchronization between body, mind, and, and soul and connecting on, um, on a deeper level is really powerful. I think movement potluck, that's, that's your term though. You just, you just invented that. <laughs> I like it. I'm going to steal that from you. Take it. This this is the beauty of, of the the podcast as an art form that I'm that I'm experiencing is that these these abilities to combine ideas and, and see where they see where they go, see what flowers. Like I had never been exposed to what you were talking about. Um and then yeah, just new ideas are, are popping up and as as a new person to this art form to this craft it's that's been my favorite part of it just the ability to sit down talk with a a brilliant human like yourself and just see see what ideas come come up between us and um might be small might be big but i really enjoy podcasting as an art form and really looking forward to to doing more of these it's just a great time well yeah i've been admiring your your uh your ethos secondhand through twitter over the past i think it was maybe like three months ago that you first popped up on my on my feed. And now uh, I think, you know, Twitter's algorithms have figured out that, uh, that, that your content is the stuff that I tend to, to like the most. So now it's like half of my timeline are uh, these videos of just like inc- incredibly creative and nutritious looking movements that uh, it's honestly, it, it's inspired me to 
level up so that uh, so that I can kind of do some of the things that you're you're modeling. Uh, and, and I'm curious if I can ask you how you fell into to your practice. Um, I think I know you know some of the the points along the way. It sounds like you've uh, you know trained martial arts. You ride your bike a lot, but um, how did you kind of discover this unique modality of, I call it equal parts beach bum, beach bum and warrior monk, but uh, <laughs> how did you discover this this own, this own unique flavor? And are, are you going to patent it? No. <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not completely positive, but I, I, have, I have some like pieces of the story, pieces of the puzzle, um, because people are starting to ask me, so I'm starting to feel a strong calling to form more of a structured um, way to share it. Um, I know the genesis of this story was at Muscle Beach down in, in Santa Monica here, which is this large outdoor gymnasium. It was built during the 1930s in the Great Depression. Um, and I was riding my bike by one day in 2015 when I was uh, really at, my, at a low point in, in, in my life. Um, and I just hung out there for a while. And it was a great energy. There were people moving around. It was, it was community plus movement, like you were talking about. It has a very powerful um, energy when, when combined, it's, it's creates, you know, it just puts people in a good mood, like almost always, mm-hmm. <laughs> unless it's something like, I don't know, there's a lot of, mo- there's a lot of these like exercise classes where people are put through the ringer and it's high intensity <laughs> interval training. And it's like, it's like, they never really talk. They're just going through these stations and that's popular right. because it's a piece of the movement community, you know, combination, but this place is much more free flowing, open. There's people, um, experimenting, being creative, there's a lot of acro yoga, which is sort of like, uh, you know, acrobatic yoga. People are working together to kind of create these poses and, and, and postures. And um, I would look and see people doing different things um, and then just kind of try them on my own and practice them. And over time, I started to be able to combine some things I had learned from my yoga practice, from my years of martial arts practice and from bits and pieces of um, what I was finding down there, almost like a, some sort of a movement bricolage. I was, I was seeing um, maybe someone from Brazil do some aerial moves or um, someone who was a master handstander. And then just kind of learning and, and experimenting and, and creating. And um, it's just fun to do. I find that it's really enjoyable to not have a set structure in place for your exercise regime or your workout protocol and to just go into it with more of an open-minded, free-flowing, intuitive style. Yeah. I think what also kind of distinguishes you from the run of the mill, you know, fitness influencers that are very much embedded in the the fitness industrial complex is the the spaciousness of the, the, the movements and the, even the equipment, like you've got that huge rope ladder and these big metal structures. It reminds me of some of the old black and white pictures that I've seen of these obstacle courses from uh, like World War II era France when Georges Hebert and the Hebertism movement was really at its peak. And I've wanted to kind of try to recreate that, but it seems like it would cost a lot of money to, to build some of these things. So Muscle Beach actually has, it looks like, you know, a couple of pretty grandiose uh, pieces of equipment that are sort of out of another time. What What's your favorite piece of equipment there? For a long time, I've loved rope climbing. Um, recently, I've had... A bit of an elbow issue, likely from climbing to the top and hanging off the thing like a crazy person. So I've been experimenting with with some other things. What I love is there's a small grass area um, where you can explore a lot of different movements. There's classic chin-up bars and and, and pull-up bars, which are always nice to hang from. Um, There's this large monkey bar set, which is clearly made for adults because the bars are something like six seven feet apart so there's no there's really no child that could swing nice. from bar to bar which, which is hilarious hilarious to think about somebody building that today just a massive monkey bar for adults to swing from because so few adults can can do it now but i imagine in the 30s um where physical culture was much more prevalent most adults would be able to do that and enjoy doing that although i have no basis for that belief it just makes sense to me i know that um humans were a lot more fit and active and, and, and physically capable back then. And then uh, there's also some rings. There's traveling rings, so you swing from ring to ring. That's that's fun to do. And, um, yeah, as, as a gym, it's it's really unrivaled to be able to be outside in the fresh air. You can have mm-hmm. your bare feet in the earth, sunshine on your face, and be surrounded by people from other countries coming in, trying things, talking to you. And um, the only drawback is the occasional 
potentially schizophrenic, drug addicted uh, nomad mm-hmm. coming through and you know shouting right. obscenities. But um, other than that, it's a really magical place and worth visiting if if anyone's into um, really into physical culture and and connecting with like minded people. Yeah, we're we're no stranger to that sort of risk in Berkeley too. But but the the overall environment I think is so much more conducive to pushing yourself physically without even realizing how hard you're pushing yourself. Like it doesn't feel like you're maxing out and brutalizing yourself back into shape. It feels like you're just on the playground again. And, you know, you come away feeling even more revitalized than when you got there. So I think that's something that is, is going to be the big shift in, in fitness, at least, uh, you know, to the extent that the, uh, I mean, it's not one, one culture like physical subculture, I think is, is more apt to describe what we're angling towards. But, uh, but I do think that, you know, people are, are starving for more nutritious movement and they're accustomed to thinking of fitness and exercise as something that has to be a chore, you know, that they have to like sign up for a class that, that they don't really enjoy doing, but maybe they feel a little bit better about themselves after they do it. Um, and you know, when, if we can shape our environment to, you know, first we shape our environments, then our environments shape us. And I think that, uh, taking advantage of places that already exist that, uh, that provide that spaciousness. Um, I just, I'd like to see more of them. I'd like to see one in Northern California. And, and so hopefully the, you know, the Hebertiste, uh, that that's kind of my mission or, or one of my missions is to try to bring back like a Hebertiste center to Northern California. Although that's probably, you know, three to five years off if I can really get my act together and, and further if I can't. So. <laughs> I agree 100%. There should be something like that. An adult playground. Uh, we've got to, got to find a good catchy name for it. But if that was in every American city, every American, uh, you know, or center, basically where, where the population was over a certain amount. I mean, you've got playgrounds for kids pretty much everywhere. They're, they're ubiquitous. Same thing for adult would be would be completely um, magic. It, it would really really change the way that we um, over time. If if you know these these subcultures worked, and I, and I imagine that they would. I, I know there's one in Miami, and they have uh, more of a uh, fitness, uh, more of a gym, fitness industrial complex sort of lean to it. There's uh, squat racks and, and there's kettlebells and there are um, all kinds of dumbbells. But then there are also playground type setups with um, rings that you, monkey bars that you, that you can use and bars that, that you can do chin-ups and muscle-ups and, and things like that. But it's outside. It's free to use, you know. I'm curious what the price tag would be on that to just like have a city sort of check it out and analyze it. Because I, I do feel like Northern California would be open to something like that um, if you're, you know, presented it in, in, in the right way. Yeah, maybe. And I'm not at all against the other, you know, the, the tools that you would find in a gym, like kettlebells and, and weights. I think that they definitely have their place in the whole ecosystem. Uh, but at the end of the day, they're just tools. And I think that the, the modalities or the, maybe even more than the modalities, like deeper than that is just the, the, the principles, like the, um, principles of, of movement, that, that's something where I continue to get an education from Twitter and elsewhere, from people who are really studying, you know, what patterns we are adapted to, to use to be injury free and to be uh, more efficient in our movement. And so every, every once in a while, I try to kind of codify, you know, my understanding of the principles, but then a month later, I discover some new guru or, or someone who, who upends my understanding. So it's, it's always evolving. And, and I don't know, are there any people that you follow in particular as, as movers who have inspired you to move differently? Absolutely. Absolutely. I know Erwan Lacour had a big influence. Um, the practice of natural movement was, is a powerful book. And Aaron Alexander is another um, movement um, specialist. Used to see him quite a bit down at Muscle Beach, and um, he was exploring a lot around um, flexibility, mobility, and and strength, sort of combining them all in a way that was functional. Um, I grew up playing a lot of sports and and working out in the gym, and I did find that it led to a good amount of injuries and imbalances, 
which sort of makes sense if, if you're aggressively isolating muscles and, and building them up as it, you've kind of have to be like really uh, strict and, and have a pretty tight protocol to be able to keep that all aligned and, and working over the long term as opposed to something that's more functional and full body that kind of allows your body to balance itself and, and kind of tune to handling the challenge in a way that's uh, pretty balanced and at least in my experience that that was the way that it that it worked out right yeah and that's one of the criticisms that Hebert and and just for to I'll kind of um, give the context for how I I came to to George Hebert who was a, a French naval officer basically co- codified a lot of uh, principles of natural movement into this broader philosophy that he called um, the natural method or Hebertism. And Hebertism is even a little bit broader than just natural movement or the natural method because it includes some of his philosophy on, you know, why we move. And his his mantra was be strong to be helpful or be strong to be useful, sort of in service of, of other people in times of natural disaster. Uh, and this was what Erwan took as the the foundation for MoveNet as well. Having that as a, as a driving purpose, as giving meaning to your movement practice outside of What's the alternative? Like, I want to look good in a, like, shirtless, right? right? That's like, the, I'd say that's the driving force for most people's fitness routine for their movement practice, as opposed to something a little bit deeper. Like, I want to be useful. I want to be able to defend myself, to defend my loved ones, to um, be a, a tool of human flourishing on this planet, whatever that, however that manifests. Like, I, I want to be able to run. I want to be able to lift things. I want to be able to swim. I want to be able to climb. These things that have practical use in reality outside of like, I want to add another plate to my bench press. I'm obviously both are fantastic. If you're someone who's, who's doing either of those things, like you're a real hero in the modern world, but just having that as a deeper driving force, I think appeals to me more. And, and there are a lot of people I think who, who resonate with that at, at a deeper level, as opposed to simply um, engaging with, with a, a dumbbell practice in, in the gym setting. That's a really powerful um, that's a really powerful idea that Heber uh, shared with the world and that, that you shared here on with, with me. And Yeah, definitely. And, and what's funny is when you embrace natural movement and uh, sort of rounded approach, I think you end up with a, a better rounded physique too. You might not get the same like bulging biceps or, or like humongous pecs. You might not have the... Uh, the kind of magazine, you know, men's magazine uh, look exactly, but but I think that it, it it ends up being more harmonious and in a way more beautiful if if you are following a natural movement approach as opposed to a kind of you know artificial muscle isolation. And I, I do think that there can still be a role for both. But um, I, I've been following like the the Greek ways of training and trying to study that a little bit more to see. You know, they did things like digging as a, a form of exercise. And, uh, and, you know, you look at the Greek statues and we still today, like, I don't think very many people um, come close to that ideal. Even in the bodybuilding community, it's like you get these sort, sort of, um, you know, almost freakish, freakishly large guys that uh, it doesn't look like it's necessarily all that functional. Uh, but Arnold Schwarzenegger, you know, he he was a bricklayer for a while because it was something that he could do to make money while also getting his pump on. <laughs> um, so I have a lot of respect for a lot of those golden age of bodybuilding guys. Um, Vince Garanda is another one who I've I've learned a little bit about through uh, Raw Egg Nationalist and his, some of his biographies of golden age bodybuilders. And um, that could actually be a good transition into the the carnivore stuff because. Uh, Vince Garanda was was known for, you know, slunking eggs in, in massive quantities. And I've been known to slunk an egg or two from time to time or three or four, but usually not more than four at a time. That's kind of my limit for raw eggs. I've actually never, never slunked one. I I really love eggs cooked, so I haven't been able to get myself to make the trade off. Well, Plain, it's not so pleasant. But if have you tried the the milkshake, the Garanda milkshake? No, what is that? Okay, so it's basically you know you take three, four, five, six eggs and you mix it with like about a cup of half and half 
or I usually do just heavy cream with a little milk. Um, and that, you know, that is half and half. So, and then maple syrup or some kind of, uh, sometimes I'll do like frozen blueberries to give it more of that frozen smoothie feel. And it's delicious. It's just with the maple syrup, you, you blend it up or you whisk it up. Um, I like to use an immersion blender so that it gets a nice little foaminess to it. Maybe a little cinnamon, a little vanilla. Uh, and it tastes like as delicious as, well, I don't know. I mean, I, I, you know, ice cream, ice cream has a special place in, uh, in my diet. I've, I've learned to love ice cream again after being kind of strict paleo for many years. I've, I've come around to a little bit more sugar, you know, certainly dairy. Um, I think that all these things can be part of a, a well-rounded diet, but, but, uh, yeah, if you're, if you're intimidated by the, the pure raw egg slunk, go for the, the milkshake. That does sound delicious and, and worth trying at some point over this next week. I'll, I'll make it and share it and let you know, let you know how, how that went down because it sounds, it sounds like a tasty and easy taste. So this is what I love about cooking and about food in general is like, okay, what's, what's delicious what's nutritious mm-hmm. and what's simple. And, it, and if, if you can incorporate right. those three elements into your eating pattern, it's like you're, you're bound to be healthy for over the long term. And that what you just described sounds perfect um, from that angle. It's, it's easy. It's certainly nutrient dense and it sounds pretty delicious to me. How do you like your eggs? How do you typically cook them? In as much detail as you want to share. <laughs> usually fry them have them sunny side up cook them in butter or ghee and um i love the yolks runny so it's uh mm-hmm. it's so frustrating when they end up a little bit overcooked and, and hard because it's like gosh you weren't you know weren't paying attention this is the one moment in the day you're in the kitchen you've got like maybe a minute long window to be able to get these things off the pan before they harden but yeah I'd, i just love fried eggs um i also love soft boiled eggs mm-hmm. um just the, the runny yolk and and the the cooked whites um, together, just one of my favorite meals. And it's so simple, so simple to make. I, yeah, really enjoy those. Same here. Any other uh, favorite, just simple, you know, foods that check off those three boxes? Simple, easy, and what was the other one? Quick or delicious? Simple, delicious, and nutritious. Yeah, those those three are yeah, um, yeah. You know, at almost anything from a cow uh, kind of fits that. Yeah. the beautiful sacred cow that provides us with so much nourishment and, and got my sacred cow book here yes <laughs> really from from every angle those those animals are, are just the key to our to our flourishing um really sacred and yes yeah, steak it could be burger um and then yeah cream cream and milk are, are fantastic i've also similar to you come around to the dairy and and to the having more sugar and um had been a little more towards the strict paleo and tried out more of a plant-based lifestyle for a while. Definitely tried a lot of different things and, and kind of settling in now that I'm in my early thirties, I feel like it felt way too long and suffered <laughs> way too long from like the standard American diet down to like all these different like diet options till finally finding a place where it's just like, I'm going to eat delicious, nutritious, you know, simple foods for the most part. Um, yeah, another one is is a just a whole chicken, you know, baked chicken. That is such mm. an abundant meal that you can get lots of meals off of, and it's just it's really easy to do. You pop that thing in the oven. I like to um, paint. On, oh, I don't know if this is the right culinary term, but have like a little paintbrush, put some lard on there or some some butter, right. and put some herbs. <laughs> yeah, you bake it for like an hour, forty five minutes, whatever it is, and um, comes out golden, crispy, and delicious. It's crispy skin. Oh yeah. Yes. Yep. My mouth is watering just just uh, hearing you talk about that lard. I've never tried that, but that's a that's a good idea. Supposedly, it's a little less healthy than like the ghee or the butter, but um, amazingly delicious on on a chicken. Uh, the chicken skin is just like whew, after that. It's a yeah next level delicacy. Uh, really savor that thing because it's sort of got like a a bacon hints hints of bacon on it. It's really good. Yeah, I mean, I guess the the deeper down the rabbit hole of nutrition you get, the more you kind of realize that, you know, there's that nothing's perfect, you know, chicken and pork, I guess are higher in omega sixes and the, the polyunsaturated fats, uh, which maybe are pro inflammatory. If you get too much, I've heard people say that if you can add some, uh, vitamin E or get more vitamin E from somewhere like avocado oil or avocados, 
then that can mitigate the effect or just getting a better balance. But I think that, you know, it's, it's so easy to become overly neurotic about diet uh, that, yeah, I've, I've kind of tried to, you know, at, at what point does worrying about the, the, uh, you know, linoleic acid content in your, in your meat start to outweigh the, the health effects. I feel like there is a mental component to it um, where, you know, whatever, whatever you believe is clean, you know, can be clean. Uh, and, and as long as you're, you're, you're generally following the right principles. Um, but, but sort of speaking of which, you know, there's a lot of dogma in the diet world and, uh, we had this little, uh, back and forth about carnivore and, uh, and I have mixed feelings about carnivore. I don't know if you, do you want to shift and talk about that a little bit? Sounds great. Absolutely. Yeah. I, this, this is the new you know, diet fad. The new diet trend interest in this is, is really peaking. I wrote some tweet about wanting to try it and it got way more attention than I thought that it would. Um, it's been something that's been in the back of my mind for a while as I've watched this trend grow over the past five years as initially something that was sort of fringe and kind of crazy sounding to becoming more and more prevalent. I've seen more and more stories and now I'm hearing it in real life. I'm meeting people who are saying, oh, I've been carnivore for years and it made a profound impact on my life. Most of these people are a little bit older in their 40s and, and, and 50s. And hearing that first off always gives me pause to say, wow, that's incredible because suffering is, is prevalent and it's actually pretty difficult to remediate. And and two, um, it's flipping everything on, on its head for a lot of people who seem to be under the impression that meat is unhealthy and is clearly not the case if you're eating only meat, mostly beef, and you're healing, you're experiencing a profound alleviation of suffering. Clearly, this is a highly healthy healing food. So I'm um, I'm curious what your experience was trying to, to go on the, the one week of, of carnivore and I'll share a little bit about mine as well. Yeah. I mean, it's a fun idea. The beef cleanse, as you put it, you know, it, it, it upends a lot of people's notions and as a contrarian, I'm, I'm all about that. So I'm definitely predisposed to like the carnivore diet and I like the taste of meat. You know, I like to butter my bacon and butter my salami so I was thinking this, this shouldn't be too bad. You know, I'm going to give it a, a shot for a week and then maybe continue the experiment after that. Um, I would say my, you know, for, first of all, I'm sure that the, the people in the diehard carnivore community would say that I didn't try it for long enough and that I wasn't strict enough. And you can always kind of say like, oh, well, you know, if you had done the real thing, then it would have been better. Like, you know, real socialism has never been tried. But um, I was pretty strict. I ate, I did eat some butter and and cultured cream. Um, I, I had maybe a couple of sips of of milk out of my my daughter's cup. Uh, you know, her bedtime routine. She drinks a little glass of milk, and and it was just too tempting. It's a couple times because the the brain. I think the the biggest obstacle for me, especially in the first couple of days, was feeling that you know the brain runs on blue on glucose and it can run on ketones as a, a sort of, um, you know, emergency measure. And some people seem to thrive, you know, being in ketosis all the time. Uh, I tend to side a little bit more with like the Ray Pete community and thinking that, you know, the, the stress of fasting and ketosis uh, for a lot of people might be, might you know, the cost might sort of outweigh the benefits um, you know, I, I do believe beneficial stress. That's kind of my whole uh, philosophy of fitness is we need to find the right sorts of stressors. Uh, but usually I feel like you don't want to have like a chronic stressor necessarily. And I wonder if some people uh, who, who aren't seeing these, you know, amazing benefits from carnivore might consider adding in uh, some, you know, certain kinds of, of sugars and starches to just improve their their mental functioning and, and alleviate some of that stress. But with that said, I do think that the cases you're talking about where people see really amazing recoveries, it's usually some kind of an autoimmune thing where their body had been reacting at a low level to some plant toxin. And plants have all kinds of toxins, like all kinds of defense mechanisms against not getting, you know, to, so that they could could protect themselves from from predators uh, and, and some of those compounds can be beneficial in small doses, but I think that the, the benefits people are seeing from carnivore are usually from eliminating one or another 
plant toxin that they didn't realize was having such an effect on them. So maybe if you if they could pinpoint which ones uh, are responsible, they could get kind of the best of both worlds and still have some plants. But, you know, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. And so for the people thriving on carnivore, I would say keep doing what you're doing. But for me, after a week, I was definitely feeling ready just to have a little more variety, you know, to be able to eat a normal meal with my family and not be the odd man out. Um, I, I think, uh, you know, I would like to try it again at some point, maybe a little bit longer and stricter, you know, just eating red meat and salt and water, maybe a little bit of other spices. But uh, yeah, what was what was your experience? Yes, I am fascinated by all this, you know, all this, all this stuff, the nutrition and how it plays into our culture and, and also um, internally the, the need for glucose, but also sort of like I was feeling this kind of need for texture, for flavor, for, for color, for variation. And I don't know to what degree that's this psychological sort of a noetic phenomenon versus something that's a little bit deeper. Um, you know, that's something that I, I don't know how people do carnivore long-term I feel like they must really need to and then the, the whole another level of that is like well why why can't you digest these things that most people are can digest? like what's what's the rest of your lifestyle like that kind of got you into this place because there's so much more to health than just the food that we I I don't think I, I didn't go a single day that was like strict I was probably closer to 80 percent um I was focusing on eating more beef and eggs than I than I typically do so like I and I did feel higher vitality from that and I did experience mm-hmm. some healing in, in my joint that was bothering me. So it, if I had gone mm-hmm. deeper into the practice, deeper into the meat cleanse, I, I fully believe that I would have experienced um, more vitality and more healing. Although that is something that that's a, I feel like that's a fallacy that I often, or that one can experience is thinking that like deeper into something will give you more of that thing. You know, like if I, if I only go deeper into this, I'll get more out of it when like, Maybe not, you know, maybe, maybe you did thread the needle on that, even though if it, it wasn't, you know, perfectly dogmatic the way that it's, you know, shared, it's, um, there's so much room, so much wiggle room in, in a lot of these practices. And it's so easy to be dogmatic about this stuff, but just the simple idea of like, okay, have, have a little bit more beef, a little more eggs, have a little more protein, a little bit nutrient density, you know, in, in your life and a little less of, you know, we had like, a lot of delicious food in the fridge, like mashed potatoes and sushi oh, rice. Yeah. And that's my favorite stuff. That was just oh, like, like these yeah. fresh peaches end of, from the end of the summer. I was just like, I get, I get, and it was like, you know, it was hot and I was exercising. And when, you know, you're hot after a, an exercise session, I, it's just a big bowl of ground beef. Isn't like super appealing at, at that stage. So it's, it's, uh, yeah. yeah, it's tough. I think in uh, in Ayurvedic medicine, they talk about foods having temperatures, and I've never really looked into that, but I, I think that I associate, you know, fruit as being a cool temperature thing. You know, the picture of watermelon, uh, obviously, it's it's got a lot of water in it, but, you know, meat is definitely on the hot side of the spectrum. And so, yeah, I would say, you know, I did get a lot of benefits. I don't want to downplay that. Like, my energy levels were, were much more even throughout the day. Um, I've sort of slipped into a lot of honey in my tea and coffee and like was eating ice cream three or four days a week. Uh, just maybe getting a little too far on the, on the sugar spectrum where I was getting back into like sugar burning mode where my energy level really hinged on how much sugar I had had recently. So breaking out of that was, was amazing. And, uh, and, and similarly, I think that the cravings, the food cravings, um, even though I experienced strong cravings for sugar the first couple of days, uh, it, having the discipline to resist one kind of craving, I think, carries over into other areas where you can actually resist other kinds of temptation and other kinds of craving. So there's all these little like appetite gremlins that, that are feeding off of our dopamine receptors and just getting a break, like eating a diet that is so not triggering dopamine and yet is so nourishing. And then the other thing you said that um, that that. I like to emphasize, or, you know, if I were doing nutritional coaching which, with people, which I'm not, although I think that there's there's so much need for that. I feel like people like you and I who who don't, I, I'm, I don't know, do you do any kind of that stuff with people? Like, do you share what you've learned? On Twitter, I think, you know, you're uh, having an influence there, but like 
people in your life? Are there people that come to you looking for advice? I've, I've been wading into that territory slowly as, as I've gotten some questions pop up here and there, but it's, it's extremely difficult where a lot of people are really weird about food. It's just like, as a, from a relationship standpoint, and then you've got just the concept of a diet is um, pretty triggering to people, I think as well. And in a sense where it's like, it's a high emotional activity and, and there's so much attachment where it's, you know, you connect, it's connected to so many other things where it's like suddenly the conversation about food becomes about movement, community, mindfulness, and creativity, purpose, meaning. And it's just like you pull on one string and it's like attached to everything. So it's something that I'm starting to to engage with more as, as I sense my responsibility um, in, the, in that area. But um, I don't have much to report in a, in a, in a tangible way as of, as of yet. Yeah, and I have this chicken and egg problem where it's like I don't have experience in it, so I, I don't feel confident giving people advice, but uh, you know, I, I can't get the experience unless I actually try it. And I think uh that what I would probably want to lead with is the idea of not so much what people need to restrict as what they should be adding in. Like if you eat a a late breakfast or whatever, you know, if you eat a breakfast of uh beef and eggs you're going to be pretty full. Like you're going to be much better positioned to not fall prey to whatever bad eating habits you might have throughout the day. So kind of trying to like crowd out the bad with the good rather than just put restrictions on the the bad. But I'm also slightly of two minds with that because from a sort of macronutrient perspective, if you're encouraging someone who's already eating a lot of inflammatory foods and, and, uh, you know, has a lot of sh- like processed sugars in their diet. And then you add in a lot of dietary fat, like sat- even if it's good saturated fat from, from well-raised animals, you could still see, I think more problems of combining the fat with the, the inflammation. Do you, you know what I mean? Yeah. I'm curious. What would you see as an alternative path to that? And I guess over time you would hope to see the inflammation sort of die down and in, in the nutrient dense nourishment to sort of carry the ship forward in the commerce seas. But I guess the only other thing that comes to mind is some sort of a fast to, to sort of bring quell the inflammation away before shifting to a more um, nutrient dense diet. Yeah. And I think like a modified carnivore diet could be a good way to do that, to, to get rid of the cravings. You say, you know, for a week you're going to have, you know, as much of these foods as you want. And it might include some other plants like avocados that people are unlikely to have autoimmune problems with. I assume, I don't know. I'm not a, a an expert on these things. Maybe people do have some sensitivities to some compound in avocados, but I feel like the avocado, I mean, it's a fruit, right? It's a high fat fruit. One of the only high fat fruits that I can think of. Um, and and then maybe a little bit of fruit, but uh, but trying not to put too many restrictions on it um, while still giving them a little bit of a, a buffer between that and the start. Like if I were t- trying to craft an, an optimal health diet for someone who came to me asking for help, I don't think I would necessarily send them on the path of strict carnivore. Even though it might be a good way to do like a, a strict, you know, a strict elimination and then add things in one by one, you know, try a little white rice, try a little fruit. And if you don't have any problems, then you can keep that. But then, you know, try eating a, a sticky bun again and see what that does. Because I think after a week of, of eating carnivore, the first couple of, um, and especially with grains, I still do have a, a, a not a super strong anti-grain bias, but I think like when I eat grains, especially, um, I think GMO grains, it, it does affect me and I feel it and I feel it mentally too. Like there's something leaking across the blood brain barrier. Um, and, and wheat is a drug I'm convinced. I agree. Yeah. There are a lot of drugs in our food system masquerading as foods. And I wish there was a way to sort of, um, kind of communicate this in a better way, but it's sugar in, a, in many of its forms, you know, obviously not the kind that you find in, in fruit, but sugar is a white powder with little to no nutrient value with high addictive, high addictive properties. And, and that sounds a lot more like a drug than it does like a food, you know, it's, <laughs> and that's, an, that's everywhere. It's, it's so, I mean, soda is just a liquid 
liquid cigarette in a lot of ways. And um, so many people are addicted to it. It's I'd say that's the driving force for our uh, health health crisis, which which leads uh, which is connected uh, really directly to our to our ecological crisis. If you, I wish there was a way to kind of fit them both into to the same sort of the same concept to say, hey, our our bodies are ailing, our minds are ailing, our biosphere is is ailing. It's it's all part of the same disconnection, the same disconnection with 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 the earth, with what gives us sustenance with, with you know the way that we're choosing to live and i'm stumbling over these these words because it's it's an emotional topic to watch you know as as i've gotten older i've sort of watched things kind of fall apart um around me while seeking answers and it seems like people either don't care or they are driven to engage with um solutions quote quote solutions that are that are provided by big businesses to sort of mm-hmm. boost their own profits. They're, they're leveraging the fear and um, presenting solutions that are going to increase their, their profit margin. And I think the most obvious example of that is something like Beyond Meat, where they're just taking a bunch of yep. garbage from industrial agriculture and calling it a solution right. to our problems when in reality this thing is just uh, straight garbage and belongs um, in the trash bin of history where hopefully it's headed. And I guess I'm curious what your thoughts are on, on all that word salad that I just tossed out there. But um, I know this is something that you've, you've probably put some, some time into thinking about as well. Yeah, no, for sure. And, and you mentioned before we started uh, rolling on the recording that, um, you know, we both studied econ, which I think gives sort of a, a systems approach to thinking about things and, and looking at unintended consequences and also looking at the the perverse incentives that lead to regulatory capture, um, where you know the, the the agencies that are tasked with providing us with health information are in the the pockets of uh, of big business. And uh, yeah, Beyond Meat is the perfect example of that, where people have this perception of vegetarianism as being healthy because of, uh, you know, a confluence of, of interest between big agriculture. Um, the American Medical Association has been guilty of this because they took a wrong turn back in the 60s and basically never wanted to admit that they were wrong. And thankfully, you have a lot of doctors who are coming out now and saying the truth. And, and you know, Sean Baker, I guess, is the, the car- represents like the extreme carnivore wing. But you have a lot of other people who are who are slowly kind of breaking down the old conventional wisdom and uh and, you know if you consider like time magazine the sort of reflection of whatever the current temperature is at the moment like they've featured articles about rehabilitating butter's reputation as as the cover story um i think you know rob wolf i meant i took this book off my shelf but the sacred cow by rob wolf and uh diana rogers diana rogers who's i guess a, a nurse or registered dietitian i don't know but but Rob Wolf, you know, he's been a, a huge influence for getting people to take uh, paleo ideas more seriously in the context of uh, what's good for the planet. And the subtitle for the book is uh, why well-raised well meat is good for you and good for the planet. So I think we need more people exploring that nexus between the health of our, our soil, the health of our land and the health of our people. Um, Frank Forensic is another good example where, uh, you know, he's talking about ecology and, um, you know, moving your body in your own habitat as a way to connect with the the planet in a way that's not this abstract, uh, you know, save the earth kind of thing. It's like, it's like start in your backyard and, and look at what you can do locally um, in an embodied way. Uh, but I'm still looking for, for, ideas of how that would what that would actually look like in my in my habitat like in the east bay um i saw you've been picking up some trash on the beach i think that's a perfect example you know each time you you bend up you get a little uh little pump there and or when you bend down to pick it up uh and you're cleaning the the beach making it more beautiful for other people to enjoy yes yeah that's a little small task a micro expression of what is mine to do? What what can I contribute? What can I share? 
how can I make the more beautiful world that my heart knows possible? And I've been enjoying the beach for years now and always been a little bit disturbed by how fucking filthy it gets. And especially down where there's a large amount of, of tourism and, and people who are just visiting, you know, treating the land like a, it's a rental car where they're just going to trash it and leave their garbage. And I've picked up so much broken glass and cigarette butts and empty soda bottles. And at this point, we're at 200 34 pounds of, of garbage we collect it um pretty quickly like disturbingly fast at each time wow it's it's, it's accumulated quite a bit each time's around 10 pounds and it's really surprising how fast i fill up a bag each time but then we wait with a little fish scale to see how much we got to sort of gamify the process make it fun and do a lot of squats along the way get a lot of like People saying, hey, great job. Thanks for doing this. Sometimes people even join in and, and clean and you know contribute their own. They're inspired to, to pick up a few handfuls. Um, and this is a really small action, but it's something that anyone can do. And there are benefits beyond just like you know virtue signaling on the internet or cleaning up your neighborhood or getting some exercise. There's this, I really get what I am starting to call the beautify high. So like just looking at the mm-hmm. land that has been cleared of this plastic pollution primarily and feeling good about it. It just feels good at a deeper level. Like I get some tingles in, in my heart area and my heart chakra starts to <laughs> tingle or something. I don't know. It just feels good. So, um, yeah, that's, that's a, that's a small action that, that can be taken. Um, I think plastic pollution is a pretty gnarly problem that we all pretty much everyone is against. So it's something that we can do a little bit to sort of help remediate, um, with our free time. Yeah, definitely. I think that the agricultural, uh, issues and, and plastics, you know, the, and, and other chemicals, endocrine disruptors that are used in, in fertilizers. Uh, it's a strange political realignment. I think that's happening. Um, the the spot where I work out over near Berkeley Marina, uh, is called Cesar Chavez park. And there's this little hill that has a monument to Cesar Chavez, who I didn't know very much about. I think if anything, I maybe had a sort of vague suspicion that, that he was kind of like this socialist, uh, you know, guy that, that um, didn't understand economics or something. But, but really, I, in, in learning a little bit more about him, I've realized that he was absolutely, you know, righteous in his cause, which was centered around farm workers, but he, he viewed the farm workers as the canaries in the coal mine that were coming in contact with larger quantities of the the chemicals that we're all getting at lower doses, like glyphosate, whether or not that was around. I think that was just starting to be used, uh, you know, Roundup, the 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 GMO fertilizer that that uh, basically kills everything except for the genetically modified plant. Um, that's been found to be carcinogenic and mutagenic. And now major lawsuits are being won against these companies like Bayer, which owns Monsanto, that produces Roundup. Uh, but but you know the canary in the coal mine was the the workers who were uh, dying from this excessive exposure long before anyone was raising an alarm about uh, you know the effects of of GMO wheat on the gut. Uh, but that's where we're all we're we're poisoning ourselves, and it, it'd be a really sad way for our civilization to end. Um, you know, like the these Central American civilizations that started to to do monocrop agriculture and and then they depleted their soil. Uh, so there's there's a lot that we need to learn about how to how to live in harmony with with our our habitats. Um, and I think you know I've only sc- sort of scratched the surface, but it's been a, a huge education and like realizing that uh, you know I'm I'm very very much a uh, a beginner. One of the, my favorite move, movement sayings, Erwan talks about, you know, become a teacher, but remain a student. And so that, that both keeps it fresh and interesting. And it's just a good all around philosophy for, you know, humbling ourselves about what we don't know that we don't know. Well, that's a beautiful way to tie a ribbon on this conversation to become a teacher, but remain a student. And I appreciate the time you spent here with me today you're a brilliant guy with a lot more to share many more stories many more interesting perspectives and love to have another conversation with you i don't want to take too much of your time this morning and i've really enjoyed our, our time here uh creating this podcast so is, is there anything else that you would like to share with the audience or 
um, say before we click and record and go about our day? No, I guess I just I, I hope that, yeah, the conversation will continue uh, both on Twitter and hopefully in person one of these days. Anytime you're up in the, the Bay Area, hit me up and uh, and and I'll be glad to, to host you. And um, and I think my I've got family that that uh, lives down in, in your neck of the woods. So I'll definitely let you know next time I'm in Southern California. Absolutely. Beautiful. Will do. And uh, hopefully we link up at some point soon. And yeah, thank, thanks again for coming on and hope you have a great rest of your day. Thanks, Case. It was truly a pleasure. And uh, keep up the great work. It's very inspiring. And and I think, uh, you know, I don't, I don't know if you know the, the ripple effects of, of what you're doing, uh, all of them, but but. There, there are definitely some, you're, you're making waves. So keep it up. I hope you keep up the podcast too. We'll do on all, all fronts. We're, we're full, full steam ahead here and uh, you as well. And thank you. And um, onward. Onward. <laughs>